Welcome back to Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing this morning, man? I am doing as well as I can be at 8 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, but nonetheless, still excited to talk about some business and how business crosses over with sports and how we feel about it and make sense of it all. So, yeah, I'm doing well. How about you? I, I suppose I'm doing well. I suppose there's some irony in the fact that we're doing this earlier in the morning than usual, given the fact that there's a seemingly constant refrain of how we need to get up at 5 a.m. if we want to be successful in business and all of this stuff. So I, I suppose it's only fitting that this would be the week we record a little bit earlier in the morning. Well, that just makes me think we got to do it at 5 a.m. now. If we're going to launch a, a massively successful top 10 podcast, we got to start getting on flip five. All right. All right. Uh, you know, we, that or start doing drugs with our guests like uh, Joe Rogan does. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty would be we each have to have our own supply, of course. Amongst a whole lot of other difficulties with that. <laughs> yes. Oh my! It uh, <laughs> the the world of the top ten podcasts is an interesting world to even consider what's involved in that space. But my goodness, yeah, I I was actually thinking this week I'm a big fan of Conan O'Brien's podcast and uh, just find it so entertaining. And it was that aspect of the podcast that it just kind of struck me. I was like. I would never, ever, ever, in any way whatsoever, be able to be that entertaining. Like, there's just nothing in me or that has the capacity to, um, yeah, explicate in any way that would be that entertaining. You know, I don't think either of us grew up with that desire to be the one with the most attention around the table. Uh, and so I think that that will probably always be our lot of not... Uh, not demanding attention in the way that many others that would be more successful in this space do. This is in no way a knock on anyone in our family, but I just that projected in my mind an image of us at family gatherings at Christmas when we were kids. And if you would have like taken a snapshot and said like, okay, based on this photo of this family, who's going to launch an entertaining podcast? <laughs> And I would imagine no one would pick the two nerds in the corner playing chess, not talking to anybody. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 <laughs> at this point, we should probably invite uh, Michael on just so we can round out the, the threesome here of the of the nerds in the corner, I do believe. <laughs> Although maybe if the photo would have caught us like looking at uh, baseball score lines in the newspaper. Maybe someone would have said, "Like, fair enough." Oh, who are those seven-year-olds looking at baseball score lines, or attending a Reds game from the third to seventh inning? Um. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, what are you been well, paying attention you paying to? Attention to no, this man, man, I got it out first. You got to go first, man. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> So I, uh, one of my goals for the year was to uh, learn about rugby and see what it's all about. And I realized yesterday, uh, being able to have some time to watch uh, the first match, um, for me, 
uh, in the Six Nations tournament that's happening. I caught some of Ireland versus Wales. Mm. And the first thing that stuck out to me was... Uh, one, just how exciting I found it and how compelling and captivating it was. And it was a, a really different version of um, entertainment and interest than when I would catch it previously in my life. Um, so, of course, I've seen rugby played many, many times and even like watched matches and tournament pretty closely but never with intent. And so I think watching with intent changed it a little bit. Mm. Secondly, I think I recognized in myself a desire maybe to um, watch something really physical. And I need to explore it more for myself. But I think the physicality of football was an aspect of the sport that drew me to it when I mm. watched it. Uh, I I think there's something compelling about just kind of that brute physicality. Uh, and so I found myself entertained by that and interested by it and um, kind of inspired by it even. Um, like just that level of physical aggression and output uh, is, it, it has an effect on me. I can like feel it. Uh, it it's the same thing I feel like accidentally catching like a ufc highlight can like make my heart start racing hmm. you know um there's something about physicality that has effect on me and then what i really found interesting was the referee mm -hmm. and i don't know if you you may know more than i do i'm brand new to this and uh i was asking some friends yesterday about uh what's up with this referee but first off they have the referee mic'd uh, and so you can hear every, he's like a third commentator, mm -hmm. essentially. So his voice is at the same volume as the two commentators. And the ref, this is still brand new to me. So this is what I'm like excited to learn more about. But uh, what I have distilled so far is all the complexities for rules for a game that is that physical and that free flowing and has that many elements all the complexities that make football refereeing seem to be what's going to like bring down football once and for all, just because there's so much to rule on. Uh, it's essentially all in the hands of the referee who acts like a, a, a czar of sorts uh, and kind of is in constant communication with the players uh, and talking through all his decisions and saying like, nope, this is what we're going to do. This is what I saw. This is what we're doing. And all the players just kind of go with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so reading up a little bit more, I re I'm learning that there are like celebrity referees in the rugby world. Uh, and like every referee has their own style and kind of their own flair and their own way of negotiating that space where they have so much authority. Um, but that that level of getting so close to the field and so close to the action through the eyes and voice of the referee was really fascinating. Hmm. Um that said, the last piece I'm I'm meaning to explore is the safety of the sport and if we can ethically uh, sign off on it and be able to watch it. So, yeah, lots lots to unpack there. I do think it's interesting. You know, my um, you probably had some of the same reactions that I did to first times watching rugby, where I don't understand why the referee was blowing his whistle all the time. 
Because mm-hmm. a lot of these tackles, they all look the same to us that haven't aren't familiar with it. But apparently, there are things happening in it, and I, I've gotten better now that I've watched it more. But it does seem sometimes more arbitrary than some other sports do uh, in that way. But I, mm-hmm. it, it is interesting to point out that unlike soccer, there's no arguing with the ref. You're right, and that's an interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, if we think about basketball and soccer, these two other sports that we love, that there's a lot of arguing with the ref. Whereas in football and rugby, it is very much what the ref says goes, even if you complain about it. It's not, it's just, right. we have to accept this and move on. Yeah. Um, and it made me think, too, of how exciting it would be to have NBA refs mic'd up. And how I, I feel like that could add a whole other level of entertainment to the sport. That would be fascinating, if only because I think those refs talk a lot during the game. Yeah, you see them talking the whole time. I want to know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think um, I'm intrigued by this physicality question because, you know, if we go back to, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the football question in some ways, you know, there's two angles to the reason why I don't watch football anymore, one being the danger question. Um and what it does to these players. But the second angle being that it creates this war type atmosphere, um, and this gladiator mm-hmm. type atmosphere that I think is not good for society to embrace. Um, and rugby has some of the very same things. And I'm wondering, uh, why it feels a little bit different to me and whether I'm just justifying it. Uh, I don't, probably do not choose to watch rugby uh i don't have many opportunities to but i also choose not to uh and it's interesting to me and i wonder from that sheer physicality perspective um it is something that i find in myself that i enjoy as well and it makes me uncomfortable in Mm -hmm. some ways how much i enjoy it and so i wonder i raise all these questions about whether or not that's a natural reaction or whether it's something that's been built into us we've been acculturated to um and and it does is it something that it's okay for us to embrace from time to time that primal desire to exert one's will over someone else which i think is uh we see you know in the scrum and rugby it's it's an incredibly compelling thing to see these uh these Mm -hmm. eight or nine guys on both sides exerting as much pressure as they can to force the other folks back it's very much a uh uh, a way of thinking about war and violence, but in a very structured way. And in that structured way, perhaps we've taken some of the worst instincts of it out. Uh, but does that make this more mm-hmm. cultured and, and less um, uh, violent in the end of the day articulation of it any better? And I, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, that's a great question and a great way of putting it. And I have the same question. Um, and it, it, that's the piece where I, I have learned um, just a little bit about uh, while concussions do happen in rugby, they are seemingly happening at a rate that is not as high as American football. But nonetheless, the primary injury that uh, – I, th- I think is wor- worth saying like, wow, the, this might be the the first and last answer of should we watch is spinal injuries. Mm. Uh, and spinal injuries are often um, incurred during those scrums. Uh, and so it does and has caused a lot of paralysis in rugby players worldwide. Uh, and so when you think of it that way, it's like, 
okay, there there might be a conversation here about uh, that violent warlike mentality happening in you know uh, spaces where there's a, a a spirit of the game, so to speak, that kind of puts some confines on it and mutual respect and like uh, a sense of like not wanting to hurt your opponent rather just to compete with your opponent. Um, but nonetheless, if if that mutual desire for physical expression or physical competition leads to spinal injuries, well, then you've got a problem if you're watching it for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that might be where it comes to a stopping point. Well, it is. And I think, you know, if we take this all back, that every sport in some way is a is a uh, a way of exhibiting that desire for domination over the other um that we see with war, um, and it's done in these different ways. I mean, even chess, that's very much how chess is viewed as the, the strategy of war, uh, combined and put on a board. Um, but I think that there's ways to see that. And also I think about comparing something like rugby or football to world's strongest man, where it's essentially saying, if I can do these tasks better than you, then that's saying that I'm better in this physical competition than you, but I don't have to physically, beat you down and wrestle you to prove my dominance. And I wonder if that's in some ways to us more appealing or if that's, uh, or if we enjoy that, uh, or if we need to see that physical one-on-one, uh, in the ring, uh, kind of action. Right. Right. Yeah. It's making my, my brain go into spaces of thinking of how many sports have that dynamic within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how central it is, uh, and how maybe like once once we utilize that realization, it kind of opens up the conversation into a, a different chamber that could be kind of really exciting for me to explore. And I don't know if I've thought about it that much. That's cool. What well, is it? I think it's um, if we're going to go back to my dislike for LeBron, which we you know we have to get to at least once a podcast here. Um, <laughs> which I'm actually going to say some very positive things about LeBron here shortly. But um, I think one of the reasons I never enjoyed yeah. him in the game, uh, watching him in the game is because his game is so based on physical dominance that he has the skill set too. But those other players that have this, mm-hmm. I would argue, have the same skill set that he does, but he's bigger and stronger and faster than they are. And so that makes him right. uh, a, a more dominant player. And that's for me, is not is interesting to pay attention to. And that's part of why, uh, uh, it's, I don't get quite as much enjoyment out of watching him. Mm. I'm going to go back to Conan O'Brien and, uh, the interview he did with Charles Barkley that I've already mentioned before, but Charles was making the point that Shaq doesn't know anything about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying like, Shaq's the best person to get in a, uh, argument with about basketball because I win every single time. He says the reason that Shaq doesn't know anything about basketball is because he never had to learn anything about basketball. He's like, <laughs> Shaq was the biggest man on the planet. Of course he's going to be good in the post. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Biggest man with the nimblest feet. Yeah. What about you? What are you paying attention to? So there's two stories that kind of caught my eye. One that I want to mention in passing here, which is just that there seems to be a real rift at the moment between Lionel Messi and Barcelona, which is uh, something I don't think we've ever publicly seen before. Um, 
and it's kind of shown the cracks in this Barcelona system, which uh, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of viewed as this this iconic establishment that they've got these things set up where almost nothing can go wrong there. But clearly there's something kind of toxic in the system right now. Um, so I don't know what to make of that, but I'm intrigued. If he ch- if he changes teams, man, that changes the outlook of world soccer, doesn't it? Um, so there's that. But then also, um, because you know we got to get to our niche stuff here, uh, the Under-19 Cricket World Cup final is happening right now. Bangladesh is chasing 177 from India. It looks very likely that they'll make it there. Um, uh, but it raises this whole question for me about what I think about these under-19 competitions and under-21 competitions. Because in some ways, I, I really enjoy the competition, really enjoy seeing these younger athletes do it. Uh, but it's always fascinating to me how rarely we see the success at this level turn into success at the at the top level in the sport. Um that we so often see under 19 stars that fizzle and don't become who they could be. And that's just a a fascinating thing for me to think about how much pressure we're putting these kids under at this age and whether that contributes to them not getting there. Also, whether um, the very fact that you're competing at this high level at this young age means that your body is not prepared to or is overworked and can't reach the level that it needs to to be at the top. I, I don't have any answers, and I don't know what to think about it, but it is interesting to me that there are occasions that we see these athletes that actually make that transition smoothly, but there are a lot of times that it's those second-tier folks at that under-19 at level that turn out to be the best folks at the top level. So anyway, I just uh, I'm intrigued by the whole concept. Articulating it that way makes it feel like it's a development league and operates in the same way that minor league baseball or Mm -hmm. development leagues in basketball operate. And when it comes to these national team sports uh, that don't necessarily have professional leagues, that that is what these U21, U19, U18 tournaments are seemingly really all about. Uh, so from like a pure capitalist standpoint, it's pretty easy, it feels like, to see what, what it's about. And it's about locating talent and then cultivating that talent uh, and signing them to a contract. Um, but when you think about it from how you're saying it, of uh, to play in a U19 World Championship in whatever the sport is, that means you've probably dedicated the majority of your life to that sport. Mm. Uh, and what do we what do we get out of that? What what function does it serve, and is it good? Is a question worth asking? I feel like. Yeah, and it's uh, you know I think we're we've expressed before our disease with folks that devote too much time as youth to being athletes and what that means for your body, but also what it means for your development as a human being. But I I, I think there's, mm-hmm. particularly for some of these kind of things, you know, you think about India and, and Bangladesh playing in this uh, contest today. Uh, these are sports where, um, you know, if you make it to the top of the Indian uh, cricket world, there is nothing bigger in the Indian world than that. Um and, it's, right. and so it's just fascinating to see these kids fighting to get there and what like what drives someone at that age but but also um 
uh, is it almost a case that if you want it so badly at that point, then it's unlikely you're going to be the one with the most natural talent. Um, whereas we see those folks come to the, the, the head later on. I, I have no idea. It's just a, uh, I'm always struck by how irrelevant these seem at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, and thinking of the book that we read, um, I can't think of the name of it. The cricket book that we read. Oh, uh, Selection Day. Yeah. About cricket. Selection Day. Uh, behind any U21 or U19 tournament, I am immediately thinking about to what extent do these kids have agency in this? Mm-hmm. And where are the authority figures, uh, both conceptually and literally? And in what ways are they pulling on these kids in ways that we would call healthy and fun and worthwhile? And um, then when you add a layer of global poverty to it, it's like seemingly a lens laid on top of it that completely changes where we would find goodness and badness. and it seems even more ripe for exploitation even than uh, in more developed countries. You know, it's particularly fascinating to me now that we, we've, I'm thinking about it um, from the perspective of this being cricket. Um, and so I think about when we watched the uh, and talked about the Mumbai Indians show on Netflix, which is still fascinates me. And I'm really hoping we have mm-hmm. a second season of that coming at some point. Uh, but we we mm-hmm. made several mentions, I think, during that to the kind of um, how shocked we were at the lack of professionalism in some ways, that the the way the owners mm-hmm. were involved, the coaching setup just all felt very mediocre and not at the best. And it, it raises that question of how in India do you find that the national level team is, is where you find that professionalism that we expect to see? Or is it the fact that um, this is a, uh, in some ways, a younger country and a younger, developed, uh, professional and sports league? That we uh, is it um, uh, is it more ripe for exploitation, or is there more of a feeling of amateurism that maybe makes it feel a little bit better to us in some ways? Right. Yeah, that raises a fascinating question about the ethics of a sport and how it coincides with perceptions of professionalism Mm -hmm. and how professionalism can seemingly protect uh, what needs protecting, but also maybe can be leveraged in such a way that what needs protecting gets exploited Mm -hmm. even more. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So taking that lens of professionalism, let's let's take a bit of a, a sideways step here and look at athletes and business and the relationship between the two here. I, you know, I think for me this is particularly compelling, uh, and this kind of came out of um, the discussions that we've had for these past several weeks about Kobe Bryant and his legacy, uh, because I think he was one of the exemplars of how we see athletes parlaying their success on the floor, on a field, uh, into something successful in the business world. Um, and I'm just intrigued by that relationship. You know, I think we see Magic Johnson as an amazing example, but Michael Jordan and their examples throughout other sports, Peyton Manning, uh, some of these other folks. And uh, I'm just kind of intrigued to drill down a little bit into that. Uh, anything in particular that 
um, uh, that has gotten you thinking about this, Kyle? Yeah, I don't know if it's all that interesting or worthwhile to point out, but I like how you said it, and I I think maybe what is compelling or interesting right at the start for me is that it exists at all, and that it feels worth talking about is what is interesting to me. Uh, and I guess within that, there lies expectations. And what gets really interesting to look at for me is what our expectations are for these athletes. And because it's something worth talking about, it seems to signal that there has been a change at some point. Mm. And so what seems ubiquitous and normal now must have at some point not been normal. And it's the change or it's the development of this as a topic that I think is really interesting to me and kind of stands out as something worth talking about or at least just a way in to talking about what's significant in in this context. So I I, I think that's how I come at it from. Yeah, well, I think that's interesting because I do think it has changed and I think we see it changing everywhere now. Um, You know, I think... Uh, the NBA is driving this. You know, I think about uh, Kevin Durant having a show at the ESPN called The Boardroom uh, as being a very clear mm-hmm. indication of that. Um, but that's following in, and I think NBA players perhaps following in Michael Jordan. And I think maybe you could make an argument that Jordan was kind of the first to do this, was making himself a brand. Um, and we now see more and more mm-hmm. athletes doing that. I think internationally we see. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo very clearly doing that. But we also see folks like Messi who seem a little more reluctant to do that. Um, and I do wonder, you know, the NBA seems very comfortable with that, where some of our other leagues and sports seem a little less comfortable. And I wonder how much of that is just MJ driving the train. And I think uh, if I were to guess, I would say that we'd see other sports following in this progression uh, moving forward. Yeah, it- and I hadn't thought about this before now, I think, but that spurred in me the thought of or the curiosity to wonder if there is an athlete out there that is actively rejecting the opportunity to leverage their fame as an athlete into and transition it into a business empire. Hmm. Uh, like. Is there someone out there that says, like, no, I just want my salary. I don't want a brand. I don't want more money. I just want to play basketball. And that no one comes to mind is is maybe more fascinating than I thought it was. Well, and, you know, in some ways I suppose it makes sense because um, uh, if you're going to have advertisers come to you, and we know now that every professional athlete is going to be approached by an advertiser of some kind to do something, um, and that being the case, I think it's, uh, it, it makes sense. I mean, it, I, if I were an athlete, I would take advantage of those same opportunities. Um, and I, I think that there are ways to do it and it's, we should recognize as well that, um, there are ways to do it in a very positive way. You know, I think about one of my favorite UVA players of all time, Malcolm Brogdon has kind of created this identity for himself and this brand, focused around philanthropy. And so he started a, a, a water nonprofit focused on clean water, particularly in Africa. He's now helping other athletes get involved with that brand to help leverage that 
celebrity identity to, for a positive cause. And so I think it, it, it's very much something that we see them, individuals involved in sports, being more savvy about what they can do with that. But I do want to point out that I think this is more an American phenomenon than I think it is elsewhere, that um, I think places like ESPN and Instagram have allowed us to have this interaction with our sports. But I think when we interact when you read the Daily Mail or you read the Guardian, um, even there in the Guardian, there's not much uh, delving into these athletes beyond sports in that European context. Mm-hmm. Similarly, it, it makes me wonder if there is uh, maybe to kind of like double down on this question, like if there is a. A, a pure socialist famous athlete out there uh, <laughs> that is choosing not to leverage the capitalist gain. Um, but the either way, the branding piece seems to be ubiquitous in the sports business world too. Uh, and what you were saying reminded me of in the most recent episode of The Shop, and so this is kind of combining a few things here, uh, the shop being LeBron James and Maverick Carter show on HBO, uh, where they bring together athletes and entertainment personalities and politicians. They had Stacey Abrams on the most recent episode, uh, which, by the way, she was so inspiring hmm. uh, on this episode. And it felt so good to hear a politician talk like she talks hmm. and talk about the issues, uh, the way she talks about them was, it felt so good in contrast with the political landscape and the way we talk about things right now. But nonetheless, Sue Bird was on the episode, the WNBA player that, uh, has been front, front and center on uh, collective bargaining in the WNBA and saying players uh, need more control of the contracts that the WNBA signs with different corporations. And what she and others, um, Malcolm Jenkins was there too, they were talking about branding and how when you're 19 and you become a professional athlete, you have uh, about 50 people in your face uh, trying to dictate your brand for you and mm-hmm. trying to teach you about branding and marketing. And she was making the point, she's like, you're 19 years old and all you've done your whole life is play basketball. You know nothing about international marketing schemes. You know nothing about branding. And so then it just becomes about which uh, person within that circle can speak to that athlete in such a way that they feel safe or feel like they're going to make the most money but nonetheless what emerges is a brand that's not yours and you find yourself 10 years in living up to this brand that is not you and fails to recognize that you are a human being that is always changing and your identity is always changing Uh, but when you're handcuffed by a brand that was set for you when you were a teenager and you didn't have control over uh, it's just like one more example of how within this whole context, it's about power and who has the agency to say like, this is what I am and this is what I want to be. So in that light, when I look at LeBron and what Kevin Durant are doing, I think you could 
create an argument that they're still being controlled by systems, but it also, in some ways, uh, in your Brogdon example, stands out is like, well, once you do amass a certain amount of wealth and popularity and fame, then that is the opportunity to kind of rebrand or promote a brand that is more you and more what you want it to be. I do think that that um, I want to give these players a little more agency than that. Um, mm-hmm. Because I do think I go back to the, um, you know, our conversation last week, where we kind of laid out, you know, Charles Barkley again saying there's no dummies in the NBA, mm-hmm. um, that these folks are all super smart, and so I think that they, they may be being coaxed and branded and pushed in the wrong direction, but I think it's often their uh, their own fascination with that world that gets them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think about KD somewhere along the line, you know, he's a very famous at this point investor in uh, Silicon Valley things. Um, and at some point that was instilled in him that that would be, I think, both a way to make money, but something that was interesting and something that was worthwhile for him to do. I think we've been kind of what we're seeing um, in some ways. And I think this is why. I think we need to give them the agency in some ways, is particularly when we're looking at these NBA players. But I think this goes across the, the swath, is that they're very intelligent people who are looking at a landscape where black-owned businesses are uh, hard to come across. And so they're using their platform to try and thrive and show this example uh, and lead the way in some ways in terms of what a black-owned business can look like and what a, uh, a black male uh, entrepreneur can do. Um, and so I, I just, I want to, I want to lay that kind of perspective out there to say, um, I, I do think that there's some, uh, there's some stuff there. And I do, I, I do think it's important that we break it down as well, that there's kind of three levels of this as we think about it as well. So, I mean, there are people who have their personal brands and I think Ronaldo stands as a, you know, icon of this, that he is a personal brand and that he may have other business ventures I don't know about, but it's very much about him and who he is and how he can sell himself to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are people that invest in things. So we've got Kevin Durant who's using the money he's earned to invest in Silicon Valley and get involved in things, not necessarily having the most say in them. I think about this almost like a franchisee in some ways, which you know, folks like Shaq have been very successful with franchisee operations. So you're investing in something, but you're not necessarily in the room every day uh, being involved in it. But then there's a third tier of folks that are actually engaged in starting and running of businesses and i think those it's just important to kind of break out those three tiers of involvement and way these athletes get involved in in business to kind of further dig down into them and so for me i feel like the question becomes where did that come from and how has this developed such that that seems really normal right now Mm -hmm. that what kevin durant is doing what lebron is doing what steph curry is doing what uh, I would assume a massive I, – I bet uh, – I, this is just a hunch, but if you took the top um, 100 earners in the NBA, I would imagine every single one of them is investing, mm-hmm. that they are would consider themselves businessmen and basketball players. 
And so where did that come from and to what extent do the origins matter? And I would say to a really, really large extent. And then it leads me to asking, I'm sure there are books on this topic, but uh, is it all Nike and Michael Jordan? Hmm. Is that is that where all of this comes from? Um, could, could we trace it all back to them? And that's just the feeling and, you know, that that is the case. And if it is so it makes it really interesting to ask what did Nike and Michael Jordan see and do that made this possible and and why did they see it and who, who was driving that and um, to what extent does it still kind of that do the early days of this still kind of dictate how it happens now. Uh, and I guess the reason I want to ask that is that um, I think LeBron's goal is not to be a billionaire I think LeBron's goal is to own a team. And even more than that, I think LeBron's goal is to be commissioner of the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that, that in and of itself kind of changes it too, that I don't see LeBron just wanting to be Michael Jordan. I see him wanting to be, um, even more powerful than Jordan, uh, which I just looked this morning. Um, Michael Jordan's net worth, according to Forbes is 1.9 billion. Hmm. <laughs> so the stakes here yeah. are <laughs> astronomical. Um, well, and I think it's, I think that's a really fascinating way to put it and look back at that historical thing. Cause I think we've seen that in my mind, it's grown in complexity. Um, Cause I think if we look back at Jordan, when Jordan was playing, yes, he was focused on the brand, but I think the game mattered more to Jordan than anything. And I, I think, um, there's a I think we see that with Steph and LeBron, but I don't I think that they're it's not just the game anymore. It's the game mm-hmm. and other things. I right. can't imagine Jordan ever doing load management stuff or doing what Curry has done this year where he's like, Our team's not gonna do anything and so I'm injured and I'm gonna allow myself just to sit out. Jordan I I can only imagine fighting his way back and would have just even if his team was terrible, would have been convinced he could make them into the yep. best team in the league. And I think that's the that's a difference in some ways. And I think about so it's I think the balancing, and we see that. And I think this frustrates a lot of former players and fans in some ways to see somebody like Iguodala say, "Nope, for my brand and who I am, I'm going to sit out half this season, and when I'll go play when it's worth my time and energy to go play." And there's something about that that's deeply frustrating to a fan and to a former player whose games were all about the game, but it's also the very much the way that the game operates these days and the way all of these kind of top-level players are, are analyzing how they do things. Mm-hmm. That gives it the piece we were talking about in the last episode about the integrity of the game mm-hmm. and how to some extent there needs to be a balance struck within all of these realms and all of these actors have to be on the same page to some extent or to a large extent because I think absolutely it it is apparent and undeniable that what underlies the opportunity to make as much money and to have as much power and sway as these top athletes are in the business world is the game. Mm. 
the game still has to be intact for all of this to work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there aren't $40 million contracts and billions of people in China watching. Mm-hmm. So the game is still there, and so they still have to perform this act of playing a basketball game 86 times a year and going into the playoffs and making it interesting and compelling. So the competition is still there, but I think what we can see in these things like sitting out and taking time off and getting more involved in other ventures is an attempt uh, and in many ways a very successful and laudable attempt to take back power from the owners Mm -hmm. and say, I'm not playing just for you. And in some ways, I feel like there's an argument to be had that sitting out almost respects the game in a way. It's just a longer form of it and saying, like, I want to be able to do well in the playoffs when my team is in the playoffs. And uh, it is, from my perspective, not harming the integrity of the game by sitting out, Uh, even if you say it is because you're losing money off of me sitting out. Mm -hmm. Um so it, it's that voice that has been garnered in this process, like post Nike, post Michael Jordan, that I think really stands out to me as the fascinating part. Well, yeah, and I think it's um, it's also a recognition from these athletes that there's life after sports, which I think uh, is really a good thing and something we should be encouraging them because I think for too long um, it was all about the sport and when you were done, what did you do? Uh, and so I think for folks to embrace their more full personhood in some ways by moving beyond, even though perhaps we would argue that it should be uh, focused in some other directions, it shouldn't all be about making as much money as you can. Um, it's, mm-hmm. I think, a positive thing to see them uh, be more than just athletes. Um, and I, I think I want to push us here a little bit uh and just say that i think it's perhaps only natural that it winds up in this space that uh so i did a little bit of digging and it's fascinating how many articles are out there on inc or entrepreneur.com about why you should hire former athletes or why you should hire Mm -hmm. or why they make good executives um and there's they talk a lot about transferable skills and all these kind of things but um i wanted to share this study which i found fascinating that um ESPNW and some other folks uh, surveyed 400 C-suite executives that were women. Uh, by C-suite, we mean like CEO, CIO, COO, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Uh, 94% of those women, uh, those 400 women, played competitive sports growing up, and 52% of them played at a university level, which I find just fascinating. And there's apparently a kind of a... Um, uh, uh, um, a statement out there that, uh, without verifiable evidence, but stating that 95% of all CEOs in the world played, um, college or ath- or university mm-hmm. sports of some kind. Uh, and so I think there's very clearly something there in both the dedication and everything else that goes into being a competitive and successful athlete that lead people to be business folks down the road. Hmm. There's also, I will say, just to before we move on, is that the point of this ESPNW thing in some ways was that uh, increasing gender equality in the business world uh, is a direct output of increasing the amount we have time and energy we invest in women's sports at a younger age, which I find to be a really fascinating thing to think about. It is really fascinating to think about, and 
I will maybe need to think about it more, but those are really significant statistics, I feel like, and a conversation that needs to be unpacked more fully. Partly because my my first impression is to say, well, we need to talk about the patriarchy and mm-hmm. we need to talk, talk about uh, sexism and uh, sexist systems and how they work and... Um, yeah, what what sort of mindset and life experiences push someone uh, to that level of power and um, esteem and status? Uh, also, probably need to have a conversation about classism mm-hmm. and classism in sports and how that translates over into economics. And, and so, maybe one of the final points I wanted to bring up is closely connected with this and. I am always struck by a couple things in this conversation or uh, in particular when it when there are commentators and pundits discussing uh, athletes operating in the business world. On the one hand, I can conceptually uh, kind of right now at this point in my life sign off on the way it's talked about. So when we often hear about an athlete making an investment or changing teams or shopping free agency, it's in the language of doing what's best for them and their family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of articles I was reading this week about Kevin Durant are like, Kevin Durant's goal is to make sure his family is secure in the future. And so right there, I'm like, that's wonderful. Do as best for you and your family and make sure your family is safe in the future. Like I want those things too. Uh, that there is not much space for conversation that says, yeah, but do you need a billion? Hmm. Um, you know, the, I, I think often when I see the fines that players get for breaking a rule or something, so like cussing on national television and they get like a $50,000 fine, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's my whole salary. You just got to find my whole salary and you don't care. Like, we, it seems it's so obvious and it, it's so prevalent that we don't mention it. And so I guess I just wanted to take an opportunity to mention the obvious is that the degree at which these business empires are being built is in the 0.1%. And I feel like... I don't have answers on what I think and feel about that fully other than to say it makes me uncomfortable um, that it, it feels in some ways like it's uh, a perfect way to perpetuate an unfair system mm-hmm. is to take those that we love the most and laud them and lionize them for getting to this place to where they're essentially a, a white man now uh, or like take on that role of like, uh, literally, we use the language of like empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what, what are we doing? Let, let's. This is. There's a lot of people getting hurt along the way to LeBron making his billions. There's a lot of labor to uphold those billions. Mm-hmm. Um, how how is that being transferred down, if at all? Yeah, I I completely agree, and I think that that's part of what. Um, I think that's a great place to kind of wrap up this discussion thinking about, you know, in some ways I'm very happy because when I see Magic Johnson out there doing all that he's doing, it represents an outsider in that top club of 
most elite mm-hmm. and richest exactly. people in the world. And I'm happy to see that club become more diversified and um, everything. Yet at the same time, that club is a very unhealthy place. And I think if we replace someone like Magic Johnson with Phil Mickelson, then all of a sudden you and I are like, that's unhealthy and not okay. Right. And so right. at what point do we have, does this start getting worrisome when we think about all of these athletes going there and are we going to come to a point where we see that kind of uh, script flipped in some ways and we see an athlete who's so focused on the game that they're not interested in these business opportunities and that that um that maybe changes the paradigm back in that direction um Mm -hmm. you know i think about Giannis as an opportunity here um he does, you know, I think we see there's all these young athletes that they come in more interested in the game and kind of grow into the business sense as time goes on. But he doesn't seem particularly interested in his identity as compared to some of these other folks and really seems focused on just absolutely dominating everyone on a basketball court. Um, and will we see a point where someone comes in and does that for their entire career and it changes the paradigm of what someone wants to be where our kids are looking at that person saying, you know, I want to be like Giannis who didn't give a crap what any of us think and not like LeBron who was so focused on making everything right. Whereas our kids Mm -hmm. that are growing up right now, I think see that and want to be like that, like MJ and LeBron. So I Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just intrigued to see what the future holds and, um, and see when it does get to that point where our player empowerment question is kind of like, great, that's great. But also, um, it's unhealthy for the world at this point to kind of go to that extreme. Well, and maybe to put an example to it, this is what I feel deep in my gut about the whole China issue. So on the, again, on this most recent is episode of the shop, uh, everyone was defending LeBron for not speaking out on China. And while I, I hear that argument and the argument uh, essentially was that how can we expect these celebrities and these people we admire so much that make an attempt to have a, a social, social justice angle to who and what they are to their brand, so to speak, how can we expect them to be able to speak out on geopolitics, mm-hmm. on things that are incredibly complex? Um, I feel like in a capitalist system, if we all accept the capitalist system, we do have a right to expect that. That if you're hoarding this much of the pie, yeah, I I want you to be able to speak out. And so I think there's a counter argument uh, that says, it. In some ways, LeBron not speaking out on China is similar to the. Um, missive that is applied to Jordan if he said it or he didn't we don't know but it's the same thing as Republicans buy shoes to you mm-hmm. um, and when you're protecting a brand and you're protecting investments as we know in a capitalist system when shareholders and bottom line rationale drive decision making uh, it leads to unjust systems and so I, I guess that's where it, it gets really murky and complicated when you're trying to combine those things we're combining which is Do you, especially you that have been uh, put down by the system most egregiously, uh, but also the system still exists uh, the way you're climbing through it? And who the hell are we to say don't do that? Yeah, I think, you know, I was intrigued this week to go to a purely political place here for a moment. Um, I think this is like the, the, the main question that 
those on the left, those of us on the left have to deal with, which is, you know, I was struck um, reading through my Facebook feed the other day, someone, a, a big Bernie su- uh, supporter was taking great issue with Pete Buttigieg, who has supposed, uh, proposed the national service requirement, um, which uh, in some ways many other countries have, um, and what could include volunteer service and not necessarily military service, in fact, would be mostly volunteer service. Um, and there's a part of me that really likes that collective idea that we all have to give up six months of our life to be in service to the country mm-hmm. or to the world. Um, and yet that is in many ways in direct opposition to the ideas of individual liberty that are at the heart of liberalism that we we strive to support uh, and mm-hmm. we want everyone to be able to be themselves. So how do you marry that line between forcing these athletes to be good citizens but also allowing them to be who they are particularly right. those that have been as you said put down by the system for so many years mm-hmm. that's a tough one i don't even yeah. want to uh, think oof. about it <laughs> it is the question though yeah. one of the questions yeah yeah, and in our privilege, we don't have to answer it. We just get to ask it. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you figured out we don't answer any questions. We just talk yeah, about them just, a lot. We just make things really complicated. <laughs> All we're trying to do is make you think about it, too, so we have other people that we can know are thinking about it. <laughs> well, well. well, what are you going to be paying attention to this week, man? Well, to stay in politics to some extent, Donald Trump tweeted on behalf of Pete Rose to be admitted to the Hall of Fame yesterday, (laughs) and uh, I can't think of a better pairing than Donald Trump and Pete Rose. They were made for each other, and uh, I can't even really think of anything to say about it other than uh, Donald Trump tweeted on behalf of Pete Rose to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, so as a Cincinnatian, I, that thinks the hall of fame and ideas of hall of fames are kind of a joke and finds Pete Rose to be really endearing and seemingly very sweet and very connected to his city. The thought of him getting admitted to the hall of fame because of a Donald Trump tweet, uh, is horrific to me. (laughs) Really, really horrific. Yeah. I, I saw that and had very much the same response of, oh, you know, on one level, this might be actually helpful, but on the other level, man, this is not how I wanted this to happen. Yeah, this is not the way. No. Oh, man. Yeah. What about you? So I'm excited. Uh, I've I've got nothing on my reading slate for this week. I'm excited to hop into a book about the history of cricket, which uh, uh, I'm uh, really hoping to find fascinating um, and uh, enlightening about where all this came from and what the origins, particularly the origins of cricket in these um, uh, former uh, places of the British Isles look like. Mm-hmm. like. How did India come to embrace this? And it's the way right. they have. Uh, and that yeah. question is one that I'm really interested to learn more about. So, I love it. I want to know everything you know. <laughs> Well, I'm also following up on one of our my sports resolutions for the year, so I got to get those done, you know. So yeah. we're both doing that. I mean, you're watching your yeah. rugby, so yeah, we're making an attempt. There we go. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, uh, thanks for listening to us this week. We hope you'll be back next week, and uh, please 
Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. And uh, thank you, Carl. Thanks, man.